The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And then begin to adjust the body as you need to. We'll finish our sitting time now. Appreciate what a unusual, fortunate circumstance it is to be able to sit relatively quietly like that for 35 minutes or so. Many, many, maybe the majority of human beings don't really have the necessary supports too busy just getting by, surviving, or haven't bumped into the teachings in a way that have been helpful. But it is good when you practice at home to build in a little time at the end of a sitting period just to notice what that's like and to sense the wholesomeness, the value in having put aside that time. Like just that sense of us being, this body, mind being here in a more integrated, grounded, clear way. And again, remember, it doesn't mean it's pleasant having sat this morning, right? Because what we might be grounded in is uh, how we haven't really been taking care of the mind, the heart, and body. And the truth might be a little bit more obvious precisely because we took a little time to sit. And as I mentioned at the beginning, we're working our way through the ten paramis, these beautiful wholesome qualities in the tradition. They're the ways to cross life's floods. I love that. And that's the subtitle of Ajahn Sushito's book that is one of the recommended study texts that will be in the chat. And let me just put that one more time for people who haven't gotten the resources there. I just put it in the chat again. You can make a copy of that link and get... Uh, links to Sylvia Borstein's wonderful book on the Paramis and Ajahn Sushito, this British Buddhist monk, one of our elders. Both of them are our elders in our insight meditation or early Buddhism lineage here in the West coming out of Theravada Buddhism from places like Sri Lanka and Burma and Thailand, Laos and Cambodia. And so the paramis, uh, another way to, to think about them, this is from Joseph Goldstein, one of my really important teachers, and he talks about, uh, normally we don't use the word grace too much in Buddhism, but he talks about the development of these qualities in our heart and mind. Uh, they're really essentially good, or I know the word pure can kind of strike us wrong, like, impure is bad, impure is good, but pure in the sense of um, the motivation and the, the quality, the intentions are really trustworthy because they really revolve around generosity and kindness and non-harming, the ability to let go, as opposed to greed, hatred, and delusion, which would be the unwholesome roots. So let me just read a little bit. This is from Joseph's wonderful book, Insight Meditation. Again, Joseph Goldstein. And the chapter, I think, is called Grace or Help Along the Way. In the broadest conception of the path, 
in the vast context of spiritual practice, we cultivate and nourish certain qualities that support and propel us forward into freedom. The Pali word parami refers to the ten qualities of our mind and the cumulative power they bring to us. Generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resoluteness, loving-kindness, and equanimity. The fact that we do not often find the word grace used by schools of Buddhism may allow us to connect with the fresh and immediate sense of the word by looking directly at our own experience. I feel that the paramis are one great influence in our experience that corresponds to the sense of grace, not as a theological doctrine or metaphysical concept, but as something we can really feel and know. And now I'm skipping down a little. Parami does not come from some being outside ourselves. Rather, it comes from our own gradually accumulated purity. Sort of like uh, casually, we sometimes say good karma. Like this heart, this mind has cultivated some really wholesome habits. And then it's like money in the bank. As we live our life in a way we can count on those wholesome habits that have been cultivated. Like the habit to align, to respect the truth of things that we're talking about these weeks. He continues writing, A Buddhist understanding of reliance on a higher power would not necessarily involve reliance on some supernormal being. It is rather a reliance on these forces of purity in ourselves that are outside of our small, constricted sense of I, or we might say our limited habits of mind. And then he ends the section, and that constitutes the source of grace in our lives. And the long course of evolution in this lifetime and perhaps over many lifetimes, we have generated a power of purity in our mind by acts of generosity and loving kindness, by deepening understanding and wisdom. This power becomes the karmic force that brings blessings in our life. So our own inner development, not so our own inner development, not an external agent, brings us this grace. Develop and strengthen the paramis within you, and from that source enjoy the blessings that result. And that's really a powerful invitation. You know, like, you know, most of us, I think, appreciate the value of putting money away for a rainy day so that if we experience difficult circumstance, we have some money to draw on to kind of take care of what needs taken care of. Well, this is basically the equivalent in a spiritual sense. But like Joseph says, in, in a Buddhist framework, we don't imagine that there's a somebody out there that is accumulating our good karma. Every single moment how we're showing up, we're either cultivating mixed or unwholesome, or wholesome seeds. So when we're, you know, since early summer, we've been talking about these 10 beautiful qualities of generosity and renunciation and wisdom, patience and energy and truthfulness and resoluteness and equanimity and loving kindness. And 
mostly we cultivate them by learning how to recognize them. You know, oh, there's that seed of kindness being expressed in this moment in my life. Or even it's valuable to recognize them in other people because we get better at recognizing them. And that's what strengthens them. They become this sort of bank, spiritual bank account because they become more and more the habit of the heart to relate through these wholesome qualities, to show up using or with these wholesome qualities of mind. And we sense that in other people, you know, when we're around somebody who just has a lot of goodness seemingly wired into their personality, it's like they have some spiritual charisma or power or mag magnetism. It's like we want to be around those kind of people. In the same way, when we run into people that seem to have the opposite, really unwholesome qualities strongly developed in their mind, in their heart, Generally speaking, speaking, we want to avoid spending time with them because it can be scary and we feel mistrustful and we feel like we might be harmed. And uh, so it's not just, it's, I think it's important to see this, not just a, a way of taking care of ourselves. Like how does the world, and especially like uh, this last week and the next week or two, we'll talk about truthfulness, you know, this world seriously lacks a valuing of truthfulness. You know, what we say, what we write, what we don't say is really often used to perpetuate our advantage or the advantage of my group or to cause harm to others. So truth in a way becomes a weapon or a way to maximize my wealth or my power as opposed to valuing truth in its own right. Now, I mentioned last week, if you weren't um, in the program, that truth isn't something that any one of us owns, right? We have, like part of really aligning with truth is deeply acknowledging the limitations of any particular perception we have. Like we might feel like, in terms of my partner, I know who they are. And I can really own that truth. But that one is is insulting and are really, I think, an act of aggression against our partners if we think that my conception of them is somehow them. <laughs> it's just so not the way it is. So when we take when we talk about this parmi of truthfulness, it really involves not so much knowing the truth but understanding the limitations of our conceptions. Because thinking our conception, our mental construction, whatever we tell ourselves, thinking that that's the truth, is like a real separation from the truth. It's kind of a spiritual lie, you know, when we, like in terms of religious fundamentalism, which of course exists in Buddhism as it does probably in any kind of spiritual tradition, you know, clinging to it as being absolutely true is understandable that, that people, that sometimes you and I fall into that, but we have to be honest. That's not the truth. That's a frightened human being clinging to a fixed view about something because they can't stand the yucky feeling that happens 
when they acknowledge they don't really know for sure or that things are really ambiguous in life. And so in a Buddhist sense, aligning with the truth is getting more comfortable that truth is an ongoing process, almost always depends on us interacting with others to kind of get a sense. Like, even in terms of the deeper spiritual truths that we awaken to when the mind is settled, even those, it's really helpful to have conversations with trusted teachers and trusted Dharma friends who are practicing as well, just because it's easy, this habit of self-deception goes pretty deep. And we have a lot of incentive to lie to ourselves and others to spin the truth for our own advantage or the advantages of the people we consider in our group and, you know, to the disadvantage of people and others who we consider enemies. And it really begs the question, you know, when we look at truthfulness, it really begs the question, what is our allegiance to? Because mostly, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, it's not like we want this to be true, but if we're really honest with ourselves, we realize that it is true. We're in allegiance with self-preservation. And remember, self-preservation sometimes, of course, relates to just being physically safe, having enough warmth and enough food and enough physical safety. But a lot of that, you know, unconscious, often chronic um, motivation for self-preservation is really like um, preserving my ideas about things, my opinions, preserving the right to be right, <laughs> you know, and the right to think you're wrong in order to help me feel that I'm right. And uh, so, you know, because we're, our minds are so involved with language and co mental constructions and ideas and opinions and perspectives and perceptions, we use all of our mental construction, our ideas about stuff, as much as we might save money and get a place to live that's safe and cultivate friendships that, you know, so we have people we can rely on and all those sort of more outward things we do to feel safe and to feel secure. And maybe even more so, we are constantly cultivating fixed ideas that are mine, that I believe, to create an inner sense of safety. I'm the one who thinks this. And I'm the one who doesn't think that. And people who think like me are right, like I'm right. And people who don't think like me are wrong. And that creates a sense of ground for the sense of self, for the ego, for this uneasy construction of a me hanging out there in this wild changing world. Well, at least I can with my thoughts about things and habits of attachment, I can you know, create some ground. It's, of course, very tenuous ground, takes endless patching up, creates so much more security, than, uh, insecurity than it's worth, right? But that's what we do. So this aligning with the truth of things initially might be disconcerting because 
It's more what we don't find than what we find. It isn't like we find the golden truth wrapped up nicely, you know, in some meditation, some being of light hands us a package wrapped with a golden bow, and there's a nice little card on heavy weight paper that says, the truth, <laughs> open <laughs> for the truth, you know, and then we got it because it's our little bit of the truth. It's, you know, we keep it, we hold it tight. But really, the more we align with our the truth of our experience, the real truth is not so much what I get or I discover, but what I don't find. I don't find anything to grasp or hold. And I can say that in words, and I can grasp what I just said in words, like there's nothing whatsoever to grasp, you know. I could even carve that in, you know, titanium, a big sign in Minneapolis or here at the side of the barn, you know. Nothing is worthy of grasping or something like that. It's just sort of what the Buddha would say. But the idea, right, fixing on that idea isn't the truth. It may, for some of us, in some moments, point to an experience that is truthful, that is um, the way it is when human beings stabilize present moment awareness all of us realize this truth that nothing really is worthy of grasping. Attachment doesn't help. But even ideas that are seemingly wise are not to be grasped. The image the Buddha used is a raft. We use it to get across the flood of our lives, the wildness, because of our habits of greed, hatred, and delusion, we need to put a make a raft, we make it with what we have available, and we use it to get across. We don't use the raft to cling to. So I want to spend the rest of today talking about why speech, and this is what one of my teachers, uh, a Burmese teacher, Saida Utejaniya, says. And, and Saida Utejaniya, even though he's a, quite a respected monk and um, lives at a monastery in, in Burma and in Miramar. But he um, he ordained as a young person, but uh, he, for um, quite a while um, after his mid-twenties, I think, he took his robes off, became a lay person, got married, and worked in the family business in a sort of busy marketplace. So it's really wonderful because a lot of his teachings come out of his lay experience of having a really busy, difficult life as a layperson. And then later, I think in his early 40s, he reordained and has been now ordained for quite a while. Um, but here's what he writes in an article that was in Tricycle Magazine a while back. For lay people, speech is a great opportunity to practice. The four precepts of right speech, the four trainings of right speech, caution against false speech, malicious speech, harsh speech, and use, useless or idle speech. And he's saying, they gave a real boost to my awareness as a layperson and a businessman. Since awareness and wisdom had to come into the picture whenever I spoke, I had to apply them all day. Saying things you shouldn't say or speaking much more than is necessary brings a lot of agitation to the mind. 
The other extreme, complete silence or not speaking up when it's useful or necessary, is also problematic. Applying right speech is difficult in the beginning. It takes practice. But if you practice every time you talk to someone, the mind will learn how to be aware, to understand what it should or should not say, and to know when it is necessary to talk. Of course, you will make many mistakes. It's important to remember that piece. Because we don't learn why speech by staying quiet. I mean, it's definitely okay to stay quiet when we're not sure. But we have to kind of lean in to our relationships and our responsibilities and make the mistakes so we get better at this wise speech. Of course, you will make many mistakes. Every mistake is a learning opportunity that will teach you how to do better next time. And this... Uh, work with wise speech is really one of the best places to deepen your practice. Certainly right up there with your medi your formal, quiet meditation time. To really resolve in your heart to make every interaction where you're using words or even choosing not to speak is part of the practice of wise speech. You know, oh, that's interesting. I'm choosing not to speak. Is that skillful? And that's really the question, like, what is the quality of the mind, this mind, that those words are coming out of or the silence is coming out of? And do I trust this quality? Is it, what kind of seeds is it planting in my mind stream? Who am I becoming when I have this kind of motivation or these kinds of intentions behind my speech or my lack of speech. And like I said, just the <clears throat> easy way to kind of start getting interested in why speech and just generally this topic of truthfulness is just to like drop in the question from time to time. Is there an intention to deceive? Is there an intention to be deceptive? Even including deceiving myself. So it's not just about deceiving others. Is the mind spinning the truth, shading the truth? Is it leaving something out or emphasizing one part but not emphasizing the facts equally? Like what's really going on here? Because we're always, as the Buddha says, um, we're acting for our own advantage, for the sake of another person's advantage, or for the sake of any advantage whatsoever. We're, you know, of course, it's totally understandable that we're, in a lot of ways, a scheming animal. <laughs> because we are scheming animals. So it's not, we shouldn't be surprised. But we want to be more and more and more honest about being a scheming animal. And we do that how we think. Right? We scheme just with our thinking for our, our own advantage or the advantage of another or the advantage of whatever advantage, you know, manipulating, scheming, trying to make stuff happen to someone's advantage. And it's just part of our animal nature where it's not going to go away, but we can develop a really honest 
relationship with that tendency to scheme. I often say to people like in terms of bringing your Dharma practice, your meditation practice into daily life, a lot of it has to do with seeing through the lens of power. Like see power everywhere you look. It's always power trying to protect power. People, individuals who have relatively a lot of power, individuals who have relatively a little power, that everybody, whether we acknowledge it or not, we're interacting in this world of power. And that's that sort of power can come from the beauty of your body, the relative attractiveness of your body. It can come, like some of it comes down through the color of our skin or through the gender or sex or, uh, you know, the size of our body or institutional position or relative intelligence our class, right? So, and it's, and we're always losing a little or getting a little in all of these interactions together with each other. And it's sort of like, uh, like we don't want to talk about money. Well, we definitely don't want to talk about in any given social interaction, like how's power moving here? Like think about how inappropriate it would be. I mean, you'd need a really close Dharma friend if you were at some sort of party and you started to deconstruct how power was moving, like who has power in this sort of social dance of people and where does that power come from? And is that person, uh, are people giving people, uh, giving that person power or are per somebody sort of making themselves powerful in some way? But just to get interested, and so this really helps us start to understand our own speech in light of scheming or trying to make something happen, trying to have some advantage or avoid losing some advantage, you know, like trying to impress, trying to get someone to like us or to like us even more, or, you know, using our words to try to, maybe we embarrassed ourselves, so now we're trying to fix that, like, let me construct another reality so what I just did doesn't seem so embarrassing. You know, how we try to massage the truth a little, rationalize. I didn't just trip back then. That wasn't really a trip. Somebody left something they shouldn't have left there, you know, and that's why that happened. And we're always sort of doing these little and big time schemings. And so it's really good to understand that because it's not a small thing. You know, this commitment to truth and aligning with the truth of things and not scheming and not playing the games of deception, you know, which is so rampant in our world of communication, online communication, social media. Everything's spun this way or that way. It's the way, you know, marketing, advertising, the whole economy works. It's just incredible. I... Uh, my spouse and I, we were looking to make some changes to our heating system in our home. And uh, we brought several people in to give us quotes. And I really felt like these people were just manipulating the truth. And it, it's just like, I just didn't want to work with them. You know, it's sort of on the surface, they exuded this confidence and saying things as if they were true. And then when I asked for backup, 
it wasn't forthcoming. They couldn't back up what they said. And it, so, it sort of felt like, why would I want to do business with you if I can't trust what you're saying? And I think it's just endemic. It's like we just, we don't expect people to tell the truth anymore. And uh, this is from Bhikkhu Bodhi's wonderful little book on the four, on the Eightfold Path, The Way to the End of Suffering. It's one of the real gems as an overview. And you can get it online, I believe. And again, it's called The Noble Eightfold Path, The Way to, end Su the, way to the End of Suffering by Bhikkhu Bodhi. He's an American Buddhist monk. And he's been a monk for probably 40 years now or more. And one of the great translators of the teachings into English over the last number of decades. Um, yeah, and he just had quoted this famous story where the Buddha is teaching his like eight-year-old, seven-year-old son, who was a novice, uh, a novice monk, and just saying that, Never should you tell a deliberate lie, even in jest, even in a joke. Because if you can rationalize lying, you can rationalize anything. You can justify any kind of unskillful behavior. It's sort of like we sometimes hear about gateway drugs, you know. You do this, heroin will be next, or whatever. But it's sort of true with, like, this alignment, like this commitment to align with the truth of things. It kind of protects us in a lot of ways. It, it, it's sort of a stake in the ground, like, at the very least, I don't want to lie to myself. Because that's a slippery slope. And that's the point the Buddha is making with uh, this conversation with his son. And then uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi goes on to write, It is said that in the long course of his training for enlightenment over many lifetimes, the Bodhisattva, this, uh, the Buddha, on the, the person on the way to the Buddha, becoming a Buddha, can break all the moral precepts except the pledge to speak the truth. So that's sort of interesting, like even in terms of the stories and mythologies, or maybe it's just the way it is, who knows, about the many lifetimes the Buddha spent developing these beautiful paramis. But it said that he could make a lot of mistakes, including like even killing somebody, in the many lifetimes, because, you know, it happens. <laughs> We're in situations where we do terrible things. But the one thing somebody is on, somebody on the way to waking up doesn't do is intentionally lie. And that's interesting. And I think it really kind of hopefully heightens that for us, all those little places and maybe for some of us big places in our lives where we lie. Well, that's interesting. What's going on in my mind in these places? The reason for this is very profound and reveals that the commitment to truth has a significance transcending the domain of ethics and even mental purification, taking us to the domains of knowledge and being. Truthful speech provides in the sphere of interpersonal communication a parallel to the wisdom in the sphere of private understanding. The two are, respectively, the outward and inward modalities of the same commitment to what is real. Wisdom consists in the realization of truth, and truth is not just a verbal proposition, but the nature of things as they are. To realize truth, our whole being has to be brought into accord with actuality, 
with things as they are, which requires that in communications with others we respect things as they are by speaking the truth. Truthful speech establishes a correspondence between our own inner being and the real nature of phenomena, allowing wisdom to rise up and fathom their real nature. Thus, more than an ethical principle, devotion to truthful speech is a matter of taking our stand on reality rather than illusion, on the truth grasped by wisdom rather than the fantasies woven by desire. And that, for me, is just really powerful. And for those of you who can stay in the small groups, for the small groups today, or just finding a time this week to do your homework and to reflect about little and big places in your life where you do justify deception with a a partner, with a child, like if you're raising kids, with a friend, when you are ranting about politics and how you, it's okay. Because, you know, we're, think about all the places where we say things in a very definitive way. You know, this person is always like this. But are they really always like that? <laughs> you know? And we often speak in certain terms. But, you know, one of the things our practice reveals is Things are never 100% this or that. They're always mixed. And yet it doesn't sort of work with our argument. You know, when we're talking about somebody who we think is doing something terrible, it just seems to make our argument stronger to paint them as some pure evil, as opposed to sometimes I notice that they do this, or I heard them say this, and then this happened, and that seems really unfortunate but not to make some conclusion about who they are. You know, people who work with kids, whether at home raising them or teachers in schools, know that it's really important when you're correcting a behavior that you distinguish the person from the behavior that's not appropriate. And you really talk about the behavior and why it's not appropriate. But it doesn't, you don't, we don't make the person evil because they did something that was inappropriate. But we also don't let them get away with doing something that's inappropriate if we're the person who's responsible for training them or helping them, right? So it, it just, uh, all, there's so many places to get interested in habits of self-deception, habits of deceiving others. Um, you know, just like when we're saying something, this was my experience, or I had the thought, as opposed to presuming that our memory or our thought is true, it's a thought. I had this thought, or I remember things this way, but it's a memory, as opposed to presuming our memory is accurate. There's a lot of research now that just shows how memory is constructed over time. And it's it's kind of shocking when we realize, because <clears throat> we just presume our memory is true. I've had these places in my life where over time I realized I'm not sure if that's a memory or if that was a dream I had as a kid, you know. It's like, did that really happen or is it a dream? And it's kind of interesting first to, to see the resistance to realizing that I don't actually know if it happened. Because that's disconcerting how fuzzy everything is. 
But that's, I think, part of this aligning with the truth, is understanding that. So those of you who can stay, we'll spend at least another week on wise speech, but those of you who can stay, I think Shannon maybe is here today, um, really just to share a little in big places where you catch yourself scheming and what that feels and looks like. And if you made an effort to refrain from the scheming or to acknowledge it, you know, how did that work? Or to make amends in those places. You know, I see some of you who are raising kids and sometimes, you know, we'll say something to our kids that isn't true, but do you go back and correct the record with them later? You know, when daddy said this or whatever, you know, I was I was kind of charged and a little angry. Here's what I wish I had said, but I didn't, and I'm owning it that I made a mistake, but here's what I wish I had said in that moment. And we try again. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.